It's 6 o'clock and you are listening to Community Radio, KVMR-FM Nevada City, KCPC Camino. Today is Thursday, January 27th. I'm Claudio Mendonca, and it's time for the KVMR Evening News. Joyce Miller returns next week. Oil drilling is out in L.A. That's according to the California Report. The Los Angeles City Council voted yesterday to ban new urban oil and gas drilling. The ordinance will also look at how to decommission existing wells operating across the city. Also on the report, what we can expect from California's Reparations Task Force, who met today and will meet again tomorrow. After regional news and weather, we'll listen to the final episode of Bravehearts before we hear another essay from Molly Fisk. This is the California Report. I'm April Domboski. Oil drilling in Los Angeles is on the way out. The city council has voted unanimously to ban new oil and gas wells and to phase out existing ones over the next 20 years. Councilman Paul Koretz complained of a drill site in his district that leaked oil back in December. It's been considerably frustrating to not have the necessary tools and authority we need to protect our constituents. Uh, by immediately and unequivocally shutting down a rogue drill site like that one. In response to the vote, oil industry leaders said the ban would not only be a job killer, but it would also force the city to rely more on foreign and imported oil. Environmental justice advocates have been pushing to shut down drilling for years, citing the major health impacts they have on low-income communities. And it's not just the oil wells out there. That gas stove you flick on in your house to cook dinner— Turns out that has greater health and climate impacts than scientists previously thought. KQED's Laura Clivens has the details on a study out from Stanford researchers today. Gas stoves create carbon dioxide when they're on and leak methane when they're off. Both gases contribute to climate change. Natural gas stoves heat the planet and they also release indoor air pollutants into the air we breathe. Carbon monoxide, formaldehyde and NOx gases. Rob Jackson is an earth scientist at Stanford and study co-author. It can take just a few minutes of cooking for harmful gases to spread through the kitchen and exceed healthy levels, Jackson says. We stopped burning coal in our homes decades ago. It's time to stop burning natural gas, too. The issue is of particular concern in low-income communities for people with small kitchens and poor ventilation. So what can you do? Turn on your hood, Jackson says, and make your next stove an electric one. Many cities like San Jose and Sacramento are banning natural gas hookups in new construction. For the California Report, I'm Laura Clivens. California is the first state in the nation to tackle questions of how to make reparations for Black residents. The state's reparations task force meets today and tomorrow to continue studying how the impacts of slavery are felt today and to ask several daunting questions. Here to talk about what we can expect at this week's meetings is KPBS racial justice and social equity reporter and KQED alumna Christina Kim. Could you start by sharing a little bit more about the task force? What exactly are they tasked with and what's the goal? The goal and purpose of this task force is to study and ultimately recommend a proposal of what reparations for Black Americans might look like in California by June of next year. They began meeting last year and have already heard expert panels on issues of employment discrimination, redlining, and racist infrastructure projects. There are nine members on the task force that come from various backgrounds. It's a mix of scholars, attorneys, civil rights leaders, psychologists, local politicians, and state legislators who vary in age and perspective. 
And I think that diversity of thought was really intentional and important because the work that this task force is doing is groundbreaking. It's the first investigatory body in the nation doing this type of work on reparations at this scale. So everyone's really watching what happens here because it could be a blueprint for other states or even the federal government. And when we say reparations, what exactly are we talking about? Are we talking about cash, land? What are some of the ways the state is thinking of of compensating Black Californians? I am so glad you asked this question because I think understanding what people mean when they say reparations is really important and it can get kind of lost in the conversation. So according to William Darity and A. Kirsten Mullen, who are both scholars of Black reparations, and actually they testified in the very first task force meeting, reparations must include three things. One is acknowledgement of the harm caused. Two is redress, and that comes in the form of atonement or restitution. And finally, the third one is closure. So in other words, reparations is really a process, but there's a lot of focus on restitution, which I think comes to stand in for reparations as a whole. But there's also a lot of diversity of opinion about what counts as reparations and what's really going to be needed to do this work of repair. So various directions we can go in in terms of how we begin to restore people. What about who should get reparations? What's the tension there? Who is actually going to qualify for reparations is one of the thorniest questions that the task force has to answer. Secretary of State Shirley Weber, who actually drafted AB 3021, which led to the creation of this task force, is actually presenting on this very issue today. The bill was written with a special consideration for Black Americans descended from chattel slavery in the U.S., But the task force has also been studying the harm caused by anti-Black racism. So that really complicates the demarcation line and opens up a lot of questions. Christina, we just learned this week that the Supreme Court has agreed to take up a case that challenges whether affirmative action policies at some universities are legal. And this might have implications for the California Reparations Task Force. How so? Yeah, I actually spoke with the chair of the task force, Camila Moore, about this exact issue earlier this week. And here's what she had to say about that. Well, we know that this is a conservative Supreme Court. And so if they decide that race-based affirmative action is illegal or unconstitutional, then that could mean that any race-based initiatives that we come up with might also be deemed challenged in the courts. And so then that would be up to us to be very crafty to kind of evade some of those challenges. What topics is the task force going to discuss this week? This week, the task force is really taking on the issue of discrimination and technology first. And that includes a testimony from Dr. Sophia Noble, who wrote the book Algorithms of Oppression. So really looking at the way our technological landscape has already built in racism and the way that affects uh, Black Americans. The rest of the panels are really dedicated to health, and they've broken it up into public health, mental health, and physical health. Christina, it has been so great talking to you today. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, April. That's KPBS racial justice and social equity reporter Christina Kim. Support for The California Report comes from Stanford Medicine, protecting your health and providing dependable care with safe in-person appointments and video visits, stanfordhealthcare.org slash adaptingcare. Eric and Wendy Schmidt, whose philanthropy includes Schmidt Futures, focused on finding exceptional people and helping them do more for others together, on the web at schmidtfutures.com. And Paint Care, 
now with 800 drop-off sites in California where households and businesses can recycle their leftover paint. More at paintcare.org. And that's the California Report for Thursday, January 27th. We're a production of KQED Public Radio. I'm April Dimbosky. Thanks for listening. Here in Nevada County this afternoon, Public Health reported 222 new lab-confirmed COVID-19 cases. 3,419 cases are active, and 31 cases remain hospitalized. Today is International Holocaust Remembrance Day, the anniversary of the liberation of Auschwitz concentration camp in 1945. Nearly two decades ago, the UN General Assembly designated January 27th an annual day of commemoration for its member states in honor of the six million Jewish victims of the Holocaust and millions of other victims of Nazism. Remembrance Day also aims to promote Holocaust education, an especially timely mission with anti-Semitic incidents and Holocaust denialism on the rise in the United States and other parts of the world. Notably, today's event arrives less than two weeks after a gunman held a rabbi and three others hostage for hours at a synagogue in the suburbs of Fort Worth, Texas. And it comes as outrageous building over a Tennessee school board's decision to ban the Pulitzer Prize-winning Holocaust graphic novel, Mouse, earlier this month, at a time when conservatives in many states seek to dictate how schools teach sensitive topics like racism and sexual health. A Texas district made headlines in October after an administrator reportedly instructed teachers to provide students with, quote, opposing views of the Holocaust, end quote. That from NPR. According to the Associated Press, California has launched a $185 million jobs program today. The program is aimed at putting disadvantaged youth and young adults to work, helping their communities while improving their prospects for future success. The Californians for All Youth Job Corps was funded in Democratic Governor Gavin Newsom's 2021 California Comeback Plan. The first phase makes $150 million available to 13 large cities. Phase two will make $35 million available to smaller counties and cities selected through a competitive process, says State Chief Service Officer Josh Friday. The intent of the two-year plan is, quote, to increase youth employment in our underserved and underemployed populations, developing meaningful career pathways for young people, and helping our communities tackle local priorities, end of quote. The Job Corps will work with the cities to recruit thousands of Californians between the ages of 16 and 30. All participants will receive at least $15 an hour, but cities will be able to increase those wages. The program also includes so-called wraparound services, such as special job training, case management, and resume preparation. According to CHP Public Information Officer David Martinez, a vehicle off the shoulder of the road just east of the Forest Hill Bridge in North Auburn led the Roseville Police Department to deploy its hazmat team around 2.30 this afternoon. A chemical found in the vehicle was determined to be hydrogen sulfide. Hydrogen sulfide, also known as H2S, is a colorless gas known for its pungent rotten egg odor at low concentrations. It is extremely flammable and highly toxic. The vehicle was decontaminated, as was all the equipment and crews responding to the incident, but resources will remain on the scene until at least 6.30 this evening. Now for a brief look at regional weather. In Grass Valley and Nevada City, tonight clear with a low around 39 degrees. Tomorrow will be sunny with a high near 61. 
in Truckee and Lake Tahoe. Tonight, mostly clear with a low around 15 degrees. Tomorrow, sunny as well with a high near 43. And in Sacramento, Woodland and the surrounding region, tonight, patchy frost after 4 a.m., otherwise mostly clear with a low around 35. Tomorrow, areas of frost before 9 a.m., otherwise mostly sunny with a high near 60. Next, we bring you Bravehearts. In this final episode, we listen to success stories shared by Joe Nake and Tyson Powers, both of Hospitality House. Welcome to this edition of Bravehearts, where we hope to increase your awareness and understanding of what homelessness looks like and some of the many organizations working on solutions to improve the homeless crisis. We are your hosts, William Wallace and Betty Louise. And these are the Bravehearts. It's Betty Louise signing off with the last Bravehearts episode for a while. I hope you've learned something about homelessness and all the incredible work that's going on in this community. Anything you can do to let these homeless people know you care goes a long way. We end the series with success stories from Joe Nake and Tyson Powers of Hospitality House. Be well and be kind. So I'd love to hear some success stories. Have you got one, Tyson? Yeah, so the one that comes to mind is we have a senior who was abused and was suffering through substance use issues and was in and out of the shelter. And our goal with people, we always meet them where they're at. With case management, my goal was always to make their ellipses in and out smaller and smaller each time. Mm -hmm. So if someone goes out for two months, the goal next time is only for a month and a half. And they're coming back more frequently. And in in this case, with this senior, that was what was happening. Uh, They had a very big arc in the beginning and started that arc started getting smaller and smaller. And right now that senior is housed and happily housed and loving life and doing fantastic. We're doing follow-up case management through the post-housing case manager and they just report nothing but great things and we're helping get her to medical appointments and things of that nature. It's, it's just an amazing thing to watch when mm-hmm. someone just is happy when you see yeah. them. You see them where they were, and now it's just amazing. It's just... Do you have any insights or thoughts about why that happens? You know, like in this particular case? So I think, like Joe stated earlier, we have this increase in our Asian population becoming homeless because they're getting priced out. You know, you have people on fixed incomes, whether it's Social Security or even retirement, where 10, 15 years ago that was a good amount of money, where they had money set aside, was those rents creep up, and that you know money doesn't move forward as well all of a sudden you have people that were making good money now they're barely holding on and then they get to a point where their entire income is less than their rent alone and they end up homeless because they can't afford to pay the rent and there's nowhere really affordable for them or if there is you have waiting lists that are months or even years long so it's very daunting and people just end up homeless and what kind of shook me a little bit was 
you have seniors who all of a sudden weren't having issues with substances to having issues with substances when they come out on the street. A lot of it's for safety. And that's just, it's, it's scary. It's mm-hmm. very scary. Mm-hmm. But for this particular person to see that transformation was amazing. Mm-hmm. What about you, Joe? So there's a woman who's actually just got housed yesterday. Two small children, been homeless for over a year, almost two years. First engaged her on the street, with, she had some medical issues, connected her with our behavioral health nurse, and just worked with her. I was able to get her into a motel room through some funding streams that we partnered with the county with. So we found that using the local motels just to get somebody off the street in a non-congregate area, especially somebody with two small children, you don't want small children on the street. It's heartbreaking and it's unsafe and all these other things. So by getting her and being able to find funding to get her place there and continue to work on getting income, getting her medical needs, all this paperwork, when you have nothing, no ID, no, when I talk about social capital, all the things that makes us Americans or ID, social security card, birth certificate, all the things that proves that you're alive. When people don't have that, that's, that's, that's tough to do anything past that. So got all that taken care of, got income, the kids uh, back enrolled in school, into housing. Now there's a, the family has a home again. The kids are not going to have to grow up the rest of their lives. And that intergenerational homelessness like we talked about, mm-hmm. we can end the cycle of homelessness with this family and we have start as of yesterday. So it's heartwarming and I will continue to work with her and make sure and support her through and make sure she has everything she needs to continue on to a happy life. We're here because of the community. Without the support of the donors that help us provide these services, we wouldn't be be able to keep our doors open. We do work very closely with law enforcement. We work closely with every agency that touches health and human services. But really, you know, the love and support from this community is what keeps our doors open. We're here because we care about the folks right. and everybody that does this work, all the agencies we mentioned earlier, yeah. it takes a community to solve a very difficult issue. Thank you both for your humanity and for being committed to this work because I know it makes a difference in our community. So thank you. Thank you for joining us today. Our hope is this segment has opened your heart and mind. Be well and be kind. This project was made possible with support from California Humanities, a nonprofit partner of the National Endowment for the Humanities. Please visit calhum.org. And now, Molly Fisk. Molly Fisk. Observations from a Working Poet Sometimes, when I think something is hard, or is going to be hard, I avoid it. I mentioned this to a friend and she laughed. You and everyone else on the planet, which I confess startled me. We are each the hot centers of our own galaxies, after all, and now and then it shows. Accidentally, over the last 15 years, I've written a hundred poems about a young couple who moved from Oregon to California in 1875. Their parents crossed the country in covered wagons, but they were born in the West. This is kind of what happened to me, although my parents were in a Volkswagen Bug convertible. I never planned to write about pioneers. A woman's voice just came to me and I wrote her thoughts down, originally in poems. 
For a while, it seemed this thing was trying to be a novel, so I took out the line breaks and made the stanzas into paragraphs. But in that form, I felt I had to have the piece make more sense. Part of what I like about poetry is all the empty space involved. You don't lead the reader by the hand as much. You let her have her own reactions and make her own connections. The other thing about novels is they're supposed to have a conflict and then resolve it. This doesn't work for me. I hate conflict. I didn't want anything bad to happen to Phoebe and Miles while they were in my care, and that stopped me writing for a couple of years. Then I missed them and returned to the book, put all the paragraphs back into stanzas, saying, I'm a poet, gosh darn it, and wrote some more. Phoebe got pregnant, as one did so regularly in the 1800s, and Miles got stung by a wasp at one point and later contracted the flu and was temporarily debilitated and quite grumpy. That's all the conflict I can stand. No one will die in this book or run off with a Pony Express rider. I omitted most of the social strife of the era, too, from which my characters are far removed, living in the Surprise Valley in California's northeast corner. I'm slightly embarrassed by the story, to tell you the truth. Leaving out conflict makes it seem a bit sentimental. It also contains two sex scenes that I won't be reading aloud in public. But Miles and Phoebe are insistent that I finish it. Now I'm doing the last big job of cleaning up the chronology. When you write poems, or when I write poems, I just write what I want. I don't worry about anything outside the poem. This has led to some hilarity, like Phoebe canning pears in August when they don't actually ripen until late September, as well as being in her second trimester, both in May and in October. I think this is called continuity in the film industry. It's a pain in the neck, but understandably necessary. I hate to see glaring inaccuracies when I'm reading something. It makes me distrust the writer. I would like to be trusted at least, if not adored, and I'm launching myself into this last bit of hard work today. Writing about it here has been a nice way to procrastinate, though, and I thank you for listening. Award-winning poet Molly Fisk writes, coaches, and teaches writing in California's Sierra Nevada foothills. You can reach her at mollyfisk.com. This program is produced at the studios of KVMR-FM, Nevada City, California. Funding is provided by Harmony Books of Downtown Nevada City and KVMR with support from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. That's our newscast for this evening. You can listen to it again on our website, kvmr.org, or by subscribing to the KVMR News Podcast. KVMR gets support from Harmony Books of Nevada City, locally owned for over 25 years, next to the Chamber of Commerce at 130 Main Street. Open Monday through Saturday, 10 to 5.30, Sundays, 11 to 4. Harmony Books carries thousands of books, including local authors. And Weiss Landscaping, with over 75 years of generational experience in landscape architecture, design, and installation. Weiss Landscaping crews are educated, experienced, and provide accountability with warranties on craftsmanship, installations, and irrigation projects. Go WeissLandscaping.com. As always, we thank you for listening and supporting independent local media. 
I'm Claudio Mendoza. Have a good evening. More tomorrow.